Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Thank you. Well, before our message tonight, I'm going to read some excerpts from Psalm 139. So you are welcome to close your eyes to focus on the words, or you can read along on the screen. Psalm 139 of David. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, hello. Uh, Tonight, we are starting a new series called Step by Step, a journey through the life, or or David's journey with God, um, a journey through the life of David. And so each week, we're going to start by reading some of his words, a a psalm that he wrote um, that will pertain, hopefully, to the theme of the night. Uh, now, David's story is a, is a story that is extremely fascinating and powerful to me. Um, it is the most extensive narrated life in the entire Bible. Um, so Abraham gets 14 chapters. Um, Joseph gets 13 chapters. Uh, Moses gets 40 chapters. David gets 66 chapters of the Bible because His life is a very key part of the story of Scripture. In fact, he's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament, okay? So he's mentioned all over the Bible. Now, here's the thing about David's life. When David's life is is not a very sanitary journey with God, if you know what I'm saying. Like, his his journey is a very unsanitized um, version of what it looks like to walk with God. He is complex, like you are. And like I am. Anybody here complex? <laughs> In fact, what I would say is this. David's story teaches us how to deal with the complexities of people. See, we tend in our culture to say people are either all good or all bad. And that's not what the Bible shows us. The, the Bible shows us that God can hold the complexity of people while he's contending for his will 
and their life. So there's going to be times when we're going to read stuff about David that he is going to, uh, you're going to be like, David's the man. You're going to see acts of faith and courage and he will inspire you. And then you'll turn the page and you will see the depths of his sinfulness and he will disappoint you. But here's the point. His journey is not one that you are to emulate. He is not the hero. But as we walk, what we'll see is, is that God was with David every step of the way. And when we look at the story of David, we will encounter the faithfulness of God. We will tremble before God and ultimately we'll be plunged into the grace of God. And so I'm excited about this series. I've been wanting to do this series for, let me see, many years. Um, and it's finally here. So here we are. Uh, so I have, I have a, a couple of age old dichotomies to uh, have you um, kind of give your vote of which one you are as we, uh, as we get started. First of all, how many people are dog people versus cat people? How many people are dog people? Any dog people in the house? Okay. Yeah, okay. A passionate dog person. How many people are cat people? Yes, you are here. You are here. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes, okay. <laughs> there are, you, they, they are among us. They are among us. Okay, how many people are ocean people versus mountain people? How many ocean people do I have here? Any ocean people? Okay, okay, I got some ocean people. All right, how many mountain people? Wow, okay, okay. Mountain people out, outnumber the ocean people. People are shaking their head. You are wrong. You are wrong. Okay, how many people, when you eat your pizza, how many people eat their crust first? Crust first, crust first. Come on, come on, crust first. Okay, I'm a crust first. Okay, if, you're, if you eat it any other way, you're eating it wrong, okay? Because you want, I mean, who wants to end with a breadstick? No, you want to end with the good pizza, right? So you eat your crust first. Okay, okay, how many people eat, how many people eat the crust last, end with a breadstick? Okay, that, I'm so sorry. Okay, hold on, one more, no, two more actually. How many people are chocolate versus gummy candy people? How many people are chocolate people? Any chocolate people? Yes, all the ladies' hands go up. Almost, almost, not all, not all. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Okay, how many people are gummy candy people? Like Skittles? There we go. I'm all about the gummy candy. I'm all about the gummy candy. All right, yes, I see that. Okay, I got one more. I got one more. And I did not know what was going to be shared before me. How many people are party people versus funeral people. I had no idea. What, okay, I'm sorry, Ashley. How many people are party people? You're like, I, I prefer a good party. You're like, are you serious? How many people are funeral people? You prefer a funeral. Okay, all right. There's one of you. Okay, well, glad he's, we'll talk later, okay? <laughs> okay. Way better food, yeah. Okay, wait, okay, hold on, hold on. Do you know that Solomon was a funeral person? Here, let me just read this to you. It's up on, up on the screen. Solomon said this, better to go a ha- to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. That's what Solomon said. He'd rather go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why? He tells you, for death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take heart. Okay, so a few months ago, I went to the funeral of um, one of our alums' father, and after we left, I was deeply moved. It, there's, it was a very moving ceremony or service, and I told Amy something I, I didn't think I would ever say. I said this, 
it's actually good for me to go to funerals periodically. Now, I am not a funeral person. I'd, I'd rather go to a party than a funeral. You know, I, I, but while they're sad and uncomfortable, there is something that is so clarifying about life at a funeral. There's just something that like, it, it's like as you sit there, the fog of life just temporarily lifts and you can see life clearly and you hope when you leave, you can just still see clearly as you leave. Uh, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, says there's two kind of virtues in life. There are one, resume virtues, and these are the virtues that we, you know, would put on a resume, the things we bring to the marketplace, the things, the skills that we have. And then he said, there's another type of virtue. There's what is called eulogy virtues. And these are the things that are said about people at a funeral, whether they were kind, whether you're honest, generous, faithful, whether you were brave, whether you're capable of deep love. There's just something that is clarifying about what is talked about in that moment versus what is not talked about in that moment that gives you perspective on what life is really about. And the passage we're gonna look at tonight is probably one of the most clarifying passages that you will ever read in the Bible. It's a story that is, has this ability similar to when you're at a funeral and you hear a eulogy just to part the clouds of the, of the fog of, of life where you can see clearly into what really matters in life. And so I am very thankful that we get to talk about our story tonight. So if you will, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as, we, as you turn there, let me set the table for you. Um, Saul, the king of Israel, has shown his true colors. He has shown himself to be a person who is... Um, well, let me say, put it this way. God doesn't own his heart. God does not have the affection and allegiance of his heart. He's disobeyed God a couple times. And so God has now rejected him as the, as the king of Israel. He was the first king of Israel. And Israel is in a dire moment. What is going on in Israel is that the Philistines have, in, have come against Israel and Israel is in a very dire moment and they need a king. They need somebody who will lead them against the Philistines into thriving and honoring God. And so who will be the next king? And that is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 16. So I'm gonna read the story. We're gonna talk about it. We're gonna make a couple points and we'll respond. It says this, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Okay, so, so Samuel was the prophet of God who, who anointed Saul as the first king of Israel, okay? And he's mourning over the fact that, that, that Saul has blown it and he's concerned about what's gonna happen to the people of God. So he's mourning that, that Saul has been an unfaithful king. And God comes and he says, I have a plan. And so he tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. 
But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Okay, if Saul knows that I am going from Ramah to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, the king's going to send some people and wipe me out. And so the Lord said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So you are going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to make a sacrifice, but you're not going to just make a sacrifice. And I want you to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Verse four, when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Uh, prophets, Old Testament prophets weren't known for their small talk and cups of tea, okay? And so when the Old Testament prophet comes to your town, you're like, uh-oh, you're like thinking about your last week, like, what did I do, you know? Uh, what's the prophet here for, right? So they see him coming, and so they go get there, like, hey, S- Samuel's on his way, and so they go meet him at, at, at the edge of town, like, and, and what do they say? They say, do you come in peace? And Samuel replies, yes, I come in peace. And I go, oh, praise the Lord. Okay, because they didn't want him to come pronounce judgment on them. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And here's what I, the the text doesn't say this, but I imagine he tells Jesse, and I'm here. You see my horn full of oil? I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. And God says, it's gonna be one of your sons. So Jesse gets his sons together and they consecrate themselves. And I'm sure that Jesse, he has eight sons, seven of them are with him, kind of has it narrowed down to which one or two may be his, the next king of Israel. And it says this, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. Surely he is the one who will be the Lord's anointed. Okay, so here's Eliab was probably a physical specimen that you would see at the AFC at like 6 a.m., okay? You're like, I'm never at the AFC at 6 a.m. Exactly. The guy that the gun show is always going. You know what I'm talking about? Ripped, good looking, always looks like his hair is freshly cut. Stands tall, strong, tall, handsome, natural leader, oozes charisma, Eliab. Yeah. And Samuel, the prophet, looks at Eliab and is like, that's what we need in Israel right there. I see the Lord's anointed, you know. He's like, I I did hear from the Lord. And he says... Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. When he looks at a lion, he's like, that looks like a king. And then the next verse is one of those verses that reverberates and clears the fog. Says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Okay, the Lord's telling Samuel, I don't care what he looks like. I'm not impressed by his good looks. The Lord says, I, I, I'm not impressed by how stylish or how drippy he is. You know, like he, he may have been wearing, you know, he, he just oozing the, the, the style. He's like, I don't care. He's like, I don't care what, by the way, my kids use drippy. That's where I learned. Okay, all right. I don't care how many social media followers he has. I don't, I don't care what school he graduates from. Uh-oh. God's not impressed by a UVA degree. Did you know that? He's not. I saw a PVCC thumb up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I saw that, Aiden. Okay. Okay, God's not, God's not impressed by what brand of water bottle you carry. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, did he go there? He didn't, he, he didn't care. He doesn't care. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. God is telling the prophet. It's like the prophet is at a jewelry counter getting ready to buy fool's gold, thinking he's buying 24 karat gold. And God says, don't do it. Don't fall for it. That is fool's gold. You're just looking at the outward. You're just looking at, at the, the, the appearance. Okay, so what? I'm not, no, you, man looks at that, but I look at something way deeper, way more profound. And here's the thing, in one chapter later, you're going to get Eliab, you're going to get to see his heart. And you know what he see in his heart? His heart is proud, it's critical, and it's condescending. Now, what if God would allow the next king of Israel to be a proud, critical, and condescending king? What would that have meant for the people of God? If he would have been duped by the fool's gold because he looked the part, but his heart wasn't the part, what would it have meant for the people of God? It would have been treacherous. And I would just ask this question, what does it mean for us now when we base our lives on the wrong thing? It's treacherous. So here's the big point of my message. I, I'm gonna put it up here. I'm just gonna give it to you. Here's the big point of my message. Go ahead, Barnes. At the heart of it all, God sees and values your heart. Can we say that together? At the heart of it all, God sees and values your heart. This is the point of the message, that at the heart of it all, God sees and God values the heart. Here's the thing that strikes me when I read this passage. Samuel, the prophet of God, almost fell for it. I mean, if Samuel is susceptible to judging and valuing the external and the outward more than the internal and the thing that matters the most, if Samuel, the prophet of God, was being duped by it, then how much more are we susceptible to it ourselves? But God says, no, 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 no. I'm looking for a king after my own heart. That guy doesn't have it. 
But here's the point. If we're really honest, how much do we want to be like Eliab? Or how much do we want to be Eliab's friend if we can't be Eliab? How much do we want to be associated with Eliab? How much of our life is trying to be Eliab and, or, or, or be in the circle and be in the, the, the group that Eliab is in? I just have a question to put up there. It's like, how tempted are we to focus our lives around the wrong thing and ignore, go ahead, and ignore the most important thing, your heart? How tempted are we to focus our lives around the wrong thing and ignore the most important thing, our hearts? Well, let's keep reading. So Eliab gets rejected. And then Jesse calls Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And then Jesse thought, okay, well, how about Shema? And so he passes by, but the Lord says, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. And then Jesse had all seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. And then he asked the question, are these all the sons you have? Well, Jesse replies, they're still the youngest He's tending the sheep. Okay, so the word that's translated youngest was, it means youngest. <laughs> but it means more than that. It has this sense of insignificance or, or um, not counting for very much. There's the one who's a little less, little less significant, doesn't count for very much. Okay, here's the point. David wasn't his own dad's first round draft choice. David wasn't his own dad's second round draft choice third round draft choice he didn't even come to the draft and Samuel's like uh you sure you don't have one more he's like oh yeah 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 I guess I do have that one out in the field he was watching okay here's the other thing you need to know a shepherd in that day that was the most demeaning meaning meaningless or menial task that you could have and so he was, this was a sign that he was like on the bottom rung of the social ladder. And what is he doing? He's out watching the sheep. Okay, this guy is not getting a bid for a fraternity. You know what I'm saying? The idea, the prospect of him being a king is absolutely laughable. And Samuel then says, go get him. We're not sitting down till he comes. Well, okay, so, you know, they're like, hey, Eliab, you're pretty fast. <laughs> Can you go out? So he goes and gets his brother. His, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm kind of making this up, but I kind of picture his brother coming in the field, in from the field. He's kind of, you know, smelling like sheep. You know, not well groomed. It, it does say... That when he, when he finally came, he was glowing in health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. So the point isn't that you need to be unattractive. The point is how attractive you are does not matter to God, okay? Are you following me? The point is it doesn't matter. God isn't enamored. 
And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And old man Samuel takes his horn full of liters of oil and goes up to David, hobbles over to David and pours these liters of anointing oil, which was symbolic of the Holy Spirit over David's head. And this shepherd boy that wasn't even his own dad's fifth round draft choice is being anointed the next king of Israel and it flows over his head and down his neck and down his robe. And it says at that moment, it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully. And it's a picture of this, that there's a a man after God's own heart that's now empowered by the Spirit, and that is always a great combination. When you have somebody whose heart is owned by God, and the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit comes upon them, that now all bets are off, anything can happen. And it says this, it says in verse 13 that he did this in the presence of his brothers. In the other words, everybody is getting a lesson of what God really cares about. Because here's the point, here's what God cares about. He cares about this, that at the heart of things, God sees and cares about your heart. And so all the brothers who'd been demeaning to him and looked down on him sees that, oh, actually, look what God cares about. At the end of it all, God sees and cares about the heart. Let me tell you why I'm excited to talk about David. Because out of all of the characters in the Bible, David is the one that I most identify with. Not because I want to be a king, far from it. But I identify with just how ordinary David was. I can relate to that. I mean, I don't want to go into great depth, but I get it. Perhaps you're a person who sometimes feels overlooked. And ordinary. Just plain folk, if you will. Not much popularity, not much social status. The story of David reminds us that we have a God who doesn't overlook people like that. And then as you read the Bible and you see Jesus get his disciples, we see the same thing, that he's a God who doesn't overlook people like that. Because look at his disciples, they're just ordinary people. This is a theme of the Bible. And when I see the story of David, I'm encouraged that there's a God who sees people that other people just don't see and often feel like they're overlooked. I want to answer just a few questions before we call it a night. One, I want to answer the question, what does it mean, your heart? Second, what was it about David's heart? And then third of all, how was David's heart formed? Those are three things. We're going to spend a couple minutes, not much time on that. First of all, what does it mean when it says that God looks at the heart? Well, what is, biblically speaking, what is the heart? The heart is this. It's the core of your inner life. It's the 
the thing it's the, that defines what you love. Your heart will define what you love and it will shape the way you live. And so biblically speaking, the heart is like the center of who you are, of your inner life. And what you'll see is throughout the Bible, the story of the Bible is that God wants to redeem our hearts and recapture our hearts for him. And so the Bible will say stuff like this, above all else, guard your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. In other words, the way you live, what will shape what you love, what you do and define what you love will be your heart. And so guard it because out of it flows all of your life. And then the great commandment says this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. In other words, at the very center, at the very core of who you are, there's to be a a love for God. And when that is there, then other things will start to take their rightful place. And so the Bible is about redeeming and recapturing our hearts. So what did God see in David's heart? Well, it wasn't a sinless heart as we read the story. But the Bible does say this, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. And what we do have, we have 73 Psalms that David wrote that show us a little bit of his heart. And I believe there's some of the Psalms that, that he wrote well after his time in the pasture. But I believe a lot of the Psalms that he wrote started in the pasture. We say, Pete, well, why do you believe that? Because when you read the Psalms, how many references are there to the wilderness, to the skies, to the rocks, to the ground? And he's looking around and he's seeing, he's like, wow, God, your glory is on display in the heavens because he would sit out there on starry nights with just him and the sheep and look up and see the glory of God put on display in the heavens. And so here are a few things that we learn. One, we learn that he has a worshipful heart. He he says, "The, the glory of God is put on display in the heavens. He speaks of how God set his glory in the heavens. He worships God over and over and over again. Secondly, we see he has a hungry heart. Listen to these words. One thing I ask and this I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I picture him out there watching the sheep about 2 a.m. He's like, oh, I just want to be in your presence as he's been worshiping God and as he's been praying to the Father and he's just, he's just overwhelmed. I just want to live in your presence. He has a hungry heart for God. And then we see he has a trusting heart. It's, it says in Psalm 25, 1, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Yeah, my dad may have forgotten about me. My brothers may look down on me, but I put my trust in you. And then he says in, in Psalm 31, verses 13 and 14, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My time is in your hands. He trusted in God. A worshipful heart, a hungry heart, a trusting heart. I mean, I could keep going on, a humble heart. You know what happens after he gets anointed? He goes right back into the field. Yeah, the next time you see, they got to go get him out of the field. He's the next anointed king of Israel. And he's like, I got a job to do. I better go back to the sheep. You're like, no, no, no. You'd be like, don't you go to like the king school or something? Like, No, he's back out with the sheep. Because he's humble. Here's what I know. The list could go on, but the point is this. God had his heart. God had the affection 
the allegiance and the trust of his heart. Because at the heart of it all, God sees and cares about your heart. So what was the training ground that formed David's heart? Like, how did he get this, at where, where the scriptures would say he was a man after God's own heart? How did he develop that heart? It's a great question. And an author and pastor Chuck Swindoll, he, he, he answered it. He says this, three things, solitude, obscurity, and monotony. How many people want to have their heart formed that way? Solitude, obscurity, and monotony. That's how David's heart was formed. One, solitude. He's out hour after hour after hour with the sheep and himself and the living God. And as he's out there in that solitude with God, his heart is being shaped. And I thought to myself as I was preparing this, I'm like, I wonder if today that same solitude would, de- would form our hearts. And I thought, perhaps not, because we would just pull out our phone and scroll. Unless we didn't have any cell reception. Then we're like, I can't believe this. We need to get a tower on top of Mount Bethlehem or whatever. <laughs> you know, in the hill of Bethlehem, you know. But the point is, is this, solitude has a powerful way when we can just get rid of of just communing with God, when everything else is stripped away. And David's heart was formed in that solitude. And sometimes I lament, I mean, I I, I like my cell phone, okay? Yeah, I'm an Android user, but I still like my cell phone, okay? But, But here's the point, like sometimes I lament how much solitude we miss out on because we're just distracted, And David was out in the field where he couldn't be distracted by anyone or anything, just him, the sheep, and God. And then secondly, obscurity. He was doing what was unseen. He was doing what was unappreciated, unapplauded, and even undesirable. He was out there in the obscurity of things, being overlooked, taken for granted. And in that anonymity, God was forming his heart and the obscurity. And then finally, in the monotony, just doing the grind. (laughs) Another day out with the sheep, doing the routine, watering the sheep, feeding the sheep, chasing that one stupid sheep. You know what I'm talking about. Here we go again. Okay, that stupid sheep. Okay, so he's going, getting the sheep. And in the monotony, in the uneventful, the routine, the regular, the mundane parts of life, somehow in the midst of that, God is forming a heart after his own heart. And that's what God cared about most. The reason why I chose to include these three words tonight, because I've shared on this passage, but I've never shared this part before, is because when I look back at my own life, when I look back when I was in college, those three words describe my life. My life was one that was lonely in many ways. I, I spent a lot of time alone. Obscure and monotonous. I worked the glorious jobs of Sears, which doesn't even exist most places now, and McDonald's for three and a half years. I worked at McDonald's. 
And I worked 20 hours a week all the way through college. And most people didn't even know who I was. I'd go into class and out of class and people didn't know who I, who I was. But I, I, I would study diligently. I would work hard and I would put my devotion. I had, had times of just reading my Bible in my room by myself and I would go on prayer walks by myself and I would worship in my car on my way to class. And in the midst of the work and the study and the devotion and the prayer walks and the, and the, and the worship times in my car, I look back and God was forming my heart. And the reason why I bring all of this up is because I believe that God wants to do the same thing in your life in this season. If you'll embrace the solitude, if you'll, I'm not saying pull away from community, but I'm saying have times where you don't always have to be with, okay? So community is good, but you need time with God. And you need to embrace the monotony of, of, of what your college career may hold. And the obscurity where you wonder if anybody even dreams any dreams for you. You know what I'm saying? And understand God's got dreams for you and he wants to work in you a a heart after his own. So I just have a simple question. Will you embrace this season with all of its anonymity, with all of its monotony and allow God to use it to form your heart? Because at the heart of it all, God sees and cares about your heart. I remember, oh, here's a, a good quote to wrap this part up. The conversion of a soul is a miracle of a moment, but the manufacturing of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Full of solitude, full of obscurity, and full of monotony. But here's the thing, like we're so used to the thrills and chills and another three minute YouTube video and if it doesn't make us laugh, we won't even watch it all. And I wonder how much we're willing to tolerate these three words. Obscurity, monotony, and solitude. About five years ago, I, took a, I stepped away from campus ministry for a couple months and took a break after a lot of years. And when, when I took that break, I went out to be with uh, a guy by the name of Michael John Cusick, who's an author and a spiritual director, and I spent two weeks with him. He has a ministry called Restoring the Soul Ministries, and I spent three hours a day with him, three hours a day. And I remember one of those times he asked me a very provocative question I've never forgotten. He said, Pete, out of everything God has given you to steward, what is most important? And I, I sat there and I started thinking, well, he's given me three kids to steward. That's pretty important. He's given me a wife, so I should probably steward my marriage well. He's given me some money. I mean, I'm campus pastor, so, you know, but he's given me some, you know. I should probably steward that well. And I started going through this list and, and uh, Michael John Cusick said this. He said, Pete, I'd like to submit to you that the most important thing God has given you to steward is your heart. He said, because your heart will impact the way you steward all those other things. And it's the thing that makes you uniquely you. And as I sat there, it's like a light bulb went on. 
I'd been in ministry for years. It's like a light bulb went on. I mean, I was already doing stuff for my heart. Don't get me wrong. But I couldn't argue with him that the most important thing God had given me to steward was my own heart. And I just want to ask you a question. Will you take the stewardship of your heart seriously? Because at the heart of it all, God cares and sees your heart. Well, this story ultimately points towards one that would be born in Bethlehem. Who would be born in the lineage of David. Who the prophet Isaiah said that there was nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. But was anointed by the Spirit. And came to people who desperately needed a king to rescue them. And to rule over their lives. And Jesus was the perfect king. And he came to die for our sin. He came to pay the price for all of our sinful actions, our sinful motives, and our corrupt hearts, and to forgive us of our sin. And then he says this, that he would give us a new heart and give us a heart that would be alive to him, that would ultimately transform us. And so as we close, I'm gonna invite the worship team up. We're gonna close with a song. I just have three questions for you. First of all, if you're here and you wonder if God sees you, let the story of David be that God sees you. He has plans and purposes for you that maybe your own parents didn't have for you, but God does. And tonight, I wanna give you an opportunity to give your allegiance to this perfect king that you can trust with your heart that says he will give you a new heart, that give your allegiance to Jesus tonight and ask him to give you a new heart. If that is you tonight, this is your opportunity. And then secondly, how tempted are you to focus your life around the wrong things and and ignore the things that matter most, your heart? And at UVA, there's so many things that you can be concerned about, that you can focus on and center things on. And in the midst of it, neglect your heart. And then finally, will you embrace this season with all of its anonymity and its monotony and allow God to use it to form your heart? Will you stand with me? I just want to take a moment. You guys can go ahead and start playing. But before we start singing, I just want you to take a moment and pray and, and offer God your heart and say, yes, God, I want you to, to form my heart in the midst of the solitude, in the midst of the anonymity and obscurity, in the midst of the monotony. Lord, will you form my heart? Lord, we want to be people who have our hearts formed where you own our hearts. And Lord, if there's anybody in here tonight who doesn't know you personally, I pray that they would give the allegiance of their heart to you and that you would give them a new heart. Taking the the corruption of their old heart, taking the, the, 
the sinful motives and sinful actions of their old heart and putting a new heart in them. Lord, thank you that you're the God who sees us. Even when we wonder if anybody else, even our own parents see us, that you see us. And I pray, Lord, that every plan and purpose you have, that you would prepare each person's heart for what you have for them. Lord, give us hearts like David that are worshipful, hearts that are hungry, hearts that are humble, submitted, and hearts that trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that through the cross and the work of the Spirit that you give us new hearts. And Lord, we pray that you take those hearts and form in us a heart after God's own hearts. Worshipful hearts, hungry hearts, trusting hearts, humble hearts, hearts that look like Jesus' hearts. And Lord, we pray like David that when you own our heart, you would then give us the power of the Holy Spirit and be with us by your Spirit's power. And that we would be able to walk forward with hearts owned by you and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we walk through this week, I pray that you would form our hearts to look more and more like Jesus. Have your way, King Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the benediction, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 